And if you turn with me again this morning to Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. We'll read this morning uh, verses 18 through 22. This is God's holy and valuable word. Give careful attention as it's read. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, that's to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of untrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it the new from the old, and the worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Well, I wonder how many of you have had the experience of going through your daily routine, doing something familiar to you, and hours go by and you realize you have really no memory of um, what, you've, what you've been doing. You've just been going through the motions in, in a sort of daze. I've, I've experienced that maybe most strikingly at times when I'm driving, right, and I drive for some significant period of time, and then I realize I have no memory of how I got to where I am over the last 10, 20 minutes, I don't remember um, steering or looking in the mirror or thinking about driving. It can be a little bit, a little bit scary, really. But people can, can be like that in terms of religion. Uh, Christianity can become uh, a mere superficial routine, just a set of, of practices and rules and habits as a matter of routine, a, a cycle that we're just a part of, uh, a habitual sort of going through the motions. Maybe makes us feel good or makes us feel religious, uh, feel comfortable, or just is what's normal to us, rather than it being a real communing with a God that you love and serve, a, a dynamic um, living relationship with God through Christ. Um, and that can describe something that, that any of us struggles with in, in varying degrees that, that can hinder our faith um, you know, now and then or, or in various ways. Um, it can also be something that keeps us or keeps people from ever knowing God and his salvation truly at all. Um, and and in, in talking about this, I, I don't mean to suggest that routine and, and ritual and habit are a bad thing um, in, in, our, in our faith and our practice of our relationship with the Lord. Routine is, is very good and um, important even. But superficial, dead routine religion is, is deadly. And it's, a, it's a major tool of, of the devil and his, and his uh, toolbox against humanity. So my, my particular encouragement and application for you this morning is that your discipleship in Christ would not be a, a day's routine of sorts, but would be a life of responding to and, and truly communing with Christ every day. So let's consider first um, this, this challenge, the way Jesus is, is challenged um, here about fasting. We're really in the midst of um, a series of conflicts 
that Jesus comes uh, into. Um, this is the second one with the Pharisees. And as we uh, continue to, in, in beginning the, the Gospel of Mark here, um, I wanted just to, to pause for a moment and consider who the Pharisees are. We, we are familiar with them in the New Testament. They come up a lot in the Gospels, but maybe we don't often pause to really understand who they were. So the Pharisees, by the time of Jesus' ministry, were around for about 200 years. Uh, the Pharisees were not, it was not an official um, authoritative position. They weren't rulers or um, they, they didn't have some kind of authority, position of authority. I think maybe sometimes we assume that they did. Um, there were people who had positions of authority who were Pharisees, but the, the Pharisaical movement was a, was a lay movement. Um, it, it wasn't um, within official um, uh, authoritative Judaism. Um, it was a movement that was defined basically by their, or primarily by their commitment to um, their attention to the law of God, the, the Torah particularly, the first five books of the Bible. So uh, knowing God's law, um, preserving it, defending it, and then uh, applying it and, and, and living it out. And you know that that by itself is is a very good goal. It should be the goal of anyone who um, who is, is in a relationship with the Lord. Uh, there were, there were other factions um, in that time, um, like, or, or movements. There were the Sadducees and the uh, Herodians. There were the Zealots, the the Essenes. Some of these are mentioned in the New Testament as well. Uh, some of these tend to be more like political parties. The Pharisees were really not a political party. Their, their concern was was for the law of God. Um, and the Pharisees were, were likely more influential than all of those other ones. So there are about uh, 6,000 Pharisees, scholars think, at, at this time. That was only about 1% of the population. Um, and yet, they, they seem to be very influential. We, and that could be evidenced in the fact that we read about them a lot in the New Testament. Josephus talks about how influential the Pharisees were. And then it is the interesting fact that of, of all those movements that I just named, um, only one survived the war with the Romans that, that ended in 70, the year 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, the Pharisees were the only one that, that lasted uh, through that. Um, so uh, they were a very influential, significant um, movement. And, and most of the conflicts in the Gospels with, that Jesus has center around the Pharisees. Um, not because... Um, he didn't have, you know, he wouldn't have had disagreements with other groups, but probably because they were the most influential, uh, just in in the general culture with with the general population. Um, we, we shouldn't suppose that we find Jesus having frequent conflicts with the Pharisees because they were uh, simply thoroughly rotten people in every way. Um, there, there were serious differences, um, spiritual differences, um, but they they weren't necessarily horrible people in every sense. They were striving for holiness in, in genuine ways, many of them certainly. But Jesus repeatedly clashed with them over their understanding of and, and their valuing of their own tradition, their own man-made rules for living, um, in addition to or even over against, at times, the law of God. Uh, what God's law really required. And that's really the issue here. Uh, so if you look at verse 18, um, it says John's disciples, that would be John the Baptist, um, who, 
not have necessarily had a lot of overlap with the Pharisees, but we see they're, they're doing the same thing here. Uh, and the Pharisees were fasting, and they come to Jesus and ask him, why, why are you and your disciples not fasting? It's clearly something that was practiced broadly. Pharisees and John the Baptist disciples and many others. Um, but Jesus and his disciples were not participating in whatever this, this regular expected fast was. Um, Luke, in Luke's account, he notes that they would fast often. This, this was a regular, regulated and expected practice. Um, and, and it's been a while since we've, it's been a month since I've been preaching here in, in Mark. Here, here's the possible connection with where we were previously uh, about a month ago. Um, recall the Pharisees were greatly offended by Jesus doing what? He was eating in Matthew's house, right? Matthew, the lying, swindling, uh, disloyal traitor tax collector, right? And he invited all his friends, and they were all having a party for Jesus, and Jesus was there. Um, enjoying himself, it, it seemed. The Pharisees were horribly offended at that. And Jesus' response was, I, these are the people I came to save. I came to call them to repentance. Um, probably implying, partly, that the Pharisees were not repentant. Right? They were not responding to Jesus. And so the question here in verse 18 could be in this sense, uh, if, if this is the same setting, it could be in this sense, look, look at all these good repentant disciples who are fasting, Jesus. Right? Repentance is part of what fasting points to. Um, we're repentant. Why, why are you implying that we are not repentant? Look how we're fasting. Look how religious we are. Okay? Well, to understand Jesus' response to this challenge, you need to understand the, the biblical picture of fasting and, and See that Jesus is not setting a, he's not rejecting fasting as a as a legitimate spiritual discipline. He's also not endorsing um, how it was done at that time. So in the Bible, it's it's important to note there is only, there is only one uh, commanded, one prescribed fast. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were um, instructed to fast one time a year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, there's there's no other fasting that's that's instructed in the whole Bible. Um, uh, there are other instances of people individually and voluntarily fasting on a, for a particular occasion, um, but there's no example of it being regulated as, as a sort of weekly um, or, or regular thing. So here's some examples of how fasting was used um, in, in the Bible. So David, uh, we're told, fasted um, in 2 Samuel 12, right, when his child was sick. Um, and, and in fact ended up, ended up dying. But as he was pleading for the life of his child, he fasted. First uh, Kings 21, Elijah confronts Ahab over his sin, and Ahab responds by fasting. Um, the psalmist in Psalm 35 says that he's, he fasted when his friends were very ill. Um, Jeremiah 36 uh, warns the people of judgment and calls them to repent, and they respond uh, with a fast. Second uh, Chronicles 20, uh, Jehoshaphat commands all of Israel uh, because uh, Israel is, or uh, Jerusalem is surrounded, it's besieged, their, their lives are all in danger, and so they all uh, partake in a fast. And then uh, Exodus 9, one other example, uh, after Israel's sin of idolatry, Moses fasts on Mount Sinai for 40 days, pleading with the Lord for his mercy. So, uh, what, what's what do all of those examples, and we could, we could continue to share more, what do all of those examples have in common? They, they all 
uh, are clearly connected to intended for mourning and, and pleading with the Lord and, and prayer to the Lord uh, in the face of some great trouble or great sin or judgment. Uh, that's, that's how fasting was used. That's what it was. It was spontaneous response to some kind of tragedy or, or need. Okay? Um, it was a spontaneous, heartfelt response to um, some kind of bad circumstances. Well, that, that stands in contrast largely to how fasting is, is thought of or, or done um, today. Even something people often do, and that this isn't wrong, it's just contrasts with the biblical picture of fasting. Uh, it, it's sort of a general way. You, you plan a fast not necessarily in response to some great tragedy, um, with, with general spiritual goals, um, or people fast for health reasons, or supposed health reasons, of course. Um, it also contrasts with what fasting had become in Judaism, right? And what's reflected in those who confront Jesus here. Um, they, they were fasting in a, a regular and regulated way. Um, it, was, it was an expected fast. And so we know from um, uh, historical Jewish documents that, um, that, that most typically this was done twice a week. The Pharisees did with fast twice a week, typically on Monday and Thursday, okay, during daylight hours. Um, uh, and in, in Luke 18, in fact, there's evidence of that as well. Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying at the temple, and the Pharisee's listing all the things that he's, he's, I'm not like this, I'm not like that, I'm not like the tax collector. What's one of the things he mentions? I fast twice a week, right? He was, he was doing this Monday-Thursday fast that, was, that became a regulated, expected outward show of piety um, in Israel. Um, this is what, what Jesus and his disciples were apparently not participating in at all. And so they would have really stuck out. Right? If, if, if you're professing to be a pious Jew, um, an especially religious person, you would be participating in, in this kind of thing, this kind of cultural practice. And so uh, even though that's, it's sort of much more serious, it, would, it might stick out like you know, maybe a family not having turkey at Thanksgiving or um, a Christian not celebrating Christmas or a married person not wearing a wedding ring. So thing, things like that, right? Not, there's no, ob no obligation on believers in any of those things. Um, and yet there's strong tradition, especially among Christians, um, for, for practicing those, those things, right? And, and, and those who uh, wouldn't, it, it might stand out as, as strange. So this is what Jesus is, is confronted about. So let's, let's move on then to consider Jesus' response. And uh, number two on your outline, I'm, I'm summarizing the, the application of this as uh, the goal of discipleship is communion with Christ. It's communion with Christ. So in verse 19, Jesus responds with a sort of mini parable uh, on the topic of a wedding. He says, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Um, so Jesus is, is using a wedding as, as a setting for his, his answer. And as Jesus often does, he doesn't really give a straight answer to the challenge. He gives um, illustrations, parables, and, and makes us think about what, what his point is. But he pictures himself here as the groom at a wedding. And his disciples, who are also not fasting, as the groomsmen, basically, the, the attendants of the groom. Okay? Uh, Jewish weddings famously typically lasted up to, to seven days. Um, it was seven days of, 
of a wedding reception, basically, of feasting and dancing and singing and, and having fun, uh, not totally unlike um, wedding receptions that we have in, in our culture, just a lot longer, right? And uh, last, last weekend, we were at uh, a wedding in Florida, the, the, the bride and groom are here with us this morning, coincidentally, and um, we had this, this common experience of going to the reception after the wedding, right, a celebration uh, of, of the wedding. And um, as, as typically, you go to the reception after the wedding and, and while the bridal party is taking pictures and eventually everyone's seated and, and you're waiting for what? You're waiting for the bridal party to come, right? So you can feast, right? So the feast can begin. And, and uh, often the bridal party sits up front and they feast first. Um, the, the point is, the Jesus' point that, that really translates well into our culture as well, um, is that groomsmen would not fast at a wedding, right? Uh, in fact, Jesus says they cannot fast. They're, they're there to celebrate the groom. The groom. Um, it, it doesn't make any, any sense to fast uh, at a wedding of all places. No one fasts at a wedding. It's entirely inappropriate. And that's, that's true across lots of cultures as well. And, and that would even include, um, historical evidence would, would suggest, it would include the Pharisees and others who practiced this weekly fast. They, w- they, would, they would stop it if there was a wedding, right? And they would feast for the whole week, uh, including Monday and Thursday. Okay? So it would contradict the situation. It wouldn't make any sense to fast at a wedding reception. Right? So Jesus' point about himself here is that it's an inappropriate time for his disciples to be fasting while Jesus is with them. Okay? It's not a time for mourning. Uh, as we saw in every one of those examples of fasting in the Bible, fasting was in response to some great tragedy or impending judgment. Right? Well, it's not a tragedy that Jesus is with them. It's, it's a cause for great rejoicing, Jesus is saying. Uh, Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God and salvation, and he's healing people and, and preaching words of life and so on. It's not a time for fasting. And, and part of the background to this is that God has, throughout his word, uh, presented himself as the groom of his people and, and illustrated his relationship with his people as a marriage. And that comes to particular focus in Christ himself. So God, the groom of his people, has now come in the flesh. He's there with them. This is like the, the, the wedding uh, reception. Um, they're meeting their groom in, in person, face to face. They have reasons for rejoicing. Now, again, Jesus doesn't say that fasting is not a, a valuable or appropriate spiritual discipline. Um, Ever And in fact, he goes on in verse 20 to say, But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. The, the language of taken away there in, in the Greek is a, is a violent, uh, tearing someone away suddenly. Um, he's speaking of his coming death. That, that would be an occasion uh, for mourning and for fasting. Um, just as it would be a tra- tragic for a groom to be torn away, uh, from a wedding. Uh, some of you have, have um, familiarity with or connection with Geneva College where um, Carly and I went to college. And their football stadium, they have several numbers retired there as, as teams often do. And one is a, a man who is a, a star quarterback who um, just after graduating at, at Geneva uh, and on the night before his wedding, so driving 
away from their rehearsal dinner, um, was hit by a drunk driver and killed. And someone known to my parents and others. Um, so he was literally torn away in the midst of wedding celebrations. And that's the sort of tragedy Jesus says is coming um, when the horror of the cross will, will confront people uh, with their sins and make fasting suddenly appropriate. Um, but appropriate fasting will be compelled by Christ himself and his people responding to him and not just by some uh, rote religious routine um, that's, that's been made up and isn't response to anything particular at all, but is just a show of outward piety, um, which is what he's being challenged about right now. Well, uh, the, the, the principle in this that I want to highlight again is that the goal of discipleship, or, or whatever our practice of religion is, is communion with Christ. Discipleship was to be a, a dynamic living response to Jesus, not, not just a formulaic ritualistic tradition that makes you feel religious or look religious. Um, it's not just doing what you've always done because it's familiar. But it's uh, discipleship, any, any practice of piety, uh, is to be responding to and growing in Christ. That, that can be the only ultimate goal of it. The, the point of fasting of any spiritual discipline must be to draw closer to Christ, to know him, to understand his suffering, to receive his comfort, and, and so on. And for the Pharisees, fasting and, and other things, as we'll see through this gospel, had become something of an outward show. And, and, and it, they were practicing those things rigidly, while at the same time neglecting and rejecting Jesus himself. Right? Um, Jesus addressed that head on in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? The, he says, you, you, you pray crying out loud and making a show of your prayers. You make it obvious when you're fasting so that people see how pious you are. No one needs to know these things. That, that, that's not related to the point of these spiritual disciplines at all. Uh, a pastor told me once, pastor some of you know, about a man in his church who would fast regularly, uh, but not quietly or personally. So he said he would be seen at the head of the line in, in church fellowship lunches, passing out plates, saying, here, you go ahead, I'm, I'm fasting. I'm fasting, you, you go ahead. Um, always, always announcing that. Um, well, Jesus... Jesus demands devotion in our hearts, whatever, whatever it is outwardly, uh, not mere duty or outward show or routine. The Pharisees were failing to follow Jesus, again, but, but sticking rigidly to their own man-made routines. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with, with their fasting, even, even their schedule of fasting. Even fasting twice a week could be a, a great spiritual discipline. Um, it could possibly have been part of a, a genuine pursuit of Christ, but in their case, it, it clearly was not. And I want to challenge you this morning with just the question, what, what practices in your life uh, might Jesus' challenge apply to? Um, it really can apply to any good tradition or practice that we have as Christians. You know, For example, the, the practice, or at least the goal of many Christians, is to read their Bibles daily. Right, the great great goal to have. Um, there's there's can be great spiritual benefit in it, but it can just as easily be a superficial routine. Right, it could be a sort of religious test of piety among us, or a habit that makes you feel religious, or gives you something to you know impress your friends with when you when you refer to it, or, or something like that. Um, it, it, that or anything else is only a valuable Christian uh, traditional practice if it is a pursuing Christ. 
uh, in it. Um, so are, are you really growing in your love and your joy and your devotion to Christ um, in your practice of Christianity? Whatever the, the regular pieces of that are, attending worship, your, your prayer routine, uh, reading your Bible, and so on. Well, Jesus amplifies this point with, with two further illustra- illustrations here. That they, they both really make the same point. And uh, thirdly on your outline, I'm, I'm summarizing the application here in, in this way. Vibrant communion with Jesus cannot be reconciled with dead routine religion. They, they don't go together. So verse 21, Jesus has this illustration. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. And, and he, he begins all three of these illustrations the same way. No, no one would do this, right? No one would fast at a wedding. It would be ridiculous, right? They're all meant to be sort of ridiculous illustrations. He goes on, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. So he's, he's speaking about, a, and we understand how, how cotton, for example, in our culture uh, shrinks initially, right? So if you had an old garment and you put a new um, uh, unshrunk patch on it, when the patch shrinks, it'll pull away and uh, both will be both will be ruined. You'll have a worse tear than you did before. Um, they, they don't go together, right? The old garment and the new the new cloth, um, they don't go together. Verse 22, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And this refers to the ancient practice of using animal skins to, to ferment wine over time. They would use essentially almost the whole skin, tie up the legs and um, the body and, and use the, the neck for pouring in and out and, and stitch it up. And animal skins are a good material for that because they, they would stretch, right? As the wine fermented and, and the gases expanded, it would stretch. But it would stretch to the point where it was it was done stretching and it was brittle so if you tried to if you drank that wine and you tried to use it again it would have no no flex and it would it would break right and the skins would be ruined and the wines would be ruined and and that's part of the point in both of these illustrations that everything gets ruined in the end what does Jesus mean what is what is his point well some interpret this as as referring to um, the Old Testament, the New Testament, trying to fit all the practices together um, that they don't, um, they don't fit together in, in terms of outward practice, right? There's, there's necessary change when Christ comes in, in fulfillment. And that, that's certainly related, I think, much of what God used uh, to teach Old Testament Israel was, was passing away, it was being fulfilled in Christ. Um, but Jesus' more, more narrow target here, I think, again, is, is ritualistic, cold, uh, routine religious practice. Uh, that can't be reconciled with, with true discipleship with Christ, um, with a heartfelt, joyful response to the gospel. Uh, Jesus, I think, is saying your, your old ways of doing things, your old ways of just going through the motions, uh, can't be put together with, with giving your whole life and faith to Jesus. Right? It really points us to the kind of total discipleship, total reorientation of our lives, giving your whole life that Jesus frequently calls his people to. Um, in other words, you can't just add Jesus to your life like a, like a new patch. Um, you can't just sort of make room for Jesus in your life. Um, you can't add him to your way of doing things or way of thinking or squeeze him into your expectations or your habits. 
um, both will be will be ruined in a sense um, in the end. Um, many of you are probably familiar with the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. The screw tape letters is um, C.S. Lewis, a, a series of fictional letters uh, written from a sort of arch demon screw tape. He's writing to his uh, his protege Wormwood, right, and, and giving him instructions uh, basically for you know how to effectively wreck the faith of, of Christians, right? How to how to tempt them and how to pull them away from true Christianity. So in, in letter 25. Uh, Screwtape writes this. He says, the real trouble about the condition of your patient, that's the Christian he's trying to ruin, right, is uh, living, the, the, the condition he's living, is that it is merely Christianity. It's, he's doing a good job of, of only living Christianity. What we want, Screwtape says, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and you know, Christianity and the crisis. Christianity goes on and lists all these Christianity and the idea of sort of just adding Christianity to, to other things, right? Or giving a Christian flavor to your life. He, he finishes by saying, if they must be Christians, let them substitute for faith itself some fashion, some popular thing out there with a Christian coloring. So the idea is it's their, their goal is for Christians to have Christianity and to be sort of two-faced, right? And, and this is the Pharisees professing on the one hand a relationship with the Lord, but on the other hand they had this spiritually dead routines, right? And, and the two can't be reconciled. They, they can't go together. You can't reconcile the one with true discipleship of Christ. Okay. Um, I, I want to just touch, go back to, to Isaiah 58 that we read earlier um, in this connection. If um, you want to turn there with me briefly, I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but just point out a couple of things um, as this chapter is particularly about fasting. And really the same problem the Pharisees have fallen into. So Isaiah 58 and Verse 2, God, God says, uh, they, he's talking about the Israelites, they ask me for just decisions, they delight in the nearness of God. That is, you, know, you, you guys love to be treated fairly, you love all the benefits of being in a relationship with me, God says. In verse 3, uh, this is them, the, the people asking, why have we fasted and you do not see? Lord, we're going through all these religious uh, motions and, and you're not paying attention to us it seems why have we humbled ourselves and you don't notice so they've been going through the motions they, they can't understand why God's not blessing them and God goes on to say basically it's because you're just going through the motions you think you jump through these hoops and you get blessed automatically um, you're, you're treating people badly you're acting selfishly it, it's not making any difference in your life uh, verse 5, is it a fast like this that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Are you, are you actually humbling yourself in your fast? Verse 6, is, it, is this not the fast that I choose? God, God says this is, this is what real fasting would lead to, to release the bonds of wickedness, undo the ropes of the yoke, let the oppressed go free. Uh, verse 7, is it not to break your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him? And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. So, in other words, God's saying true fasting, 
that's that's a humble and that's a humbling yourself and repenting before the Lord uh, leads to righteousness and selflessness and humility. Otherwise, all your religious practice, whether it's fasting or tithing or prayer, is completely worthless. Uh, in, in fact, God would say it's worse than worthless. It, it, he says in Malachi and other places, it, it would be better that you are not paying your tithe, that you are not coming to the temple if you don't mean it. It would be better that you don't bow your head, that you don't open your Bible if you're not coming in, in humble faith. And that was true of the Pharisees in the way that Jesus responds. They were fasting religiously, but not, in, in terms of other confrontation, not caring for lepers, not uh, caring for widows, not engaging tax collectors out of love to bring them to the kingdom of God. You can't understand why Jesus is doing that. And especially, they weren't following Jesus. Their, their fasting and all of their religious practice wasn't leading them to God himself in the person of Jesus. Their, their dedicated religious practice uh, was worthless. And so I, ironically then, in, in this scene here in Mark 2, it's, it's the Pharisees and disciples of John and others who are religiously fasting two days a week. Jesus and his disciples aren't fasting at all. But ironically, it's Jesus and his disciples who are offering what God calls the fast that I choose. In Isaiah 58, we're actually pursuing the Lord and, and his purposes. So they had lost sight of, of the goal of fasting, of repentance, the, these things that are good and necessary as they could have been. They, they became ends in and of themselves. Right? The fasting and um, other things that we'll read of the Pharisees Jesus confronts them about became ends in and of themselves. They became the focus. One, one pastor refers to this as, as goal displacement or the, the means of getting to the ultimate goals, or it gets in the way of, of getting to the goal, right? Um, maybe one everyday example of this. Um, Carly and I have had the, the pleasure since moving here of, of trying to get um, Colorado driver's license at, at the driver's license center. I, I say pleasure sarcastically. Um, you know how it goes. They, they send you on a treasure hunt for all kinds of documents, and, and you have to sign up for a appointment and you wait your turn and let you in and you know you forgot one of your six proofs of address or something and um, in our case we didn't forget anything um, I, I have my license now um, but uh, Carly was told that her birth certificate that she's used her entire life um, is not acceptable to Boulder County because it's not a full 8 by 11 page um, so they literally sent her home, made her start over again. And they told us, you need a, you need a marriage license. Okay, so we ordered a new birth certificate, came back with the marriage license next time. Well, the marriage license that we've used our whole marriage, got social security cards with it and everything, is not acceptable to Boulder County because it doesn't have, it doesn't have the right kind of stamp on it, apparently. So they sent her home again. She still doesn't have a license. So... Um, we'll see if the third time is the charm. But maybe a, an illustration of, of the process sort of getting in the way of, of the goal, the actual need, um, and, and what's all, all the service that's ultimately needed. Another illustration, maybe better, would be uh, weddings versus a marriage. Um, not in the way that Jesus uses that here. Uh, but marriage, of course, is, is the ultimate goal, right? The ultimate need, um, the ongoing reality. The, the wedding... Um, as, as good and important as it is, it's, it's a momentary means 
to, to the, the purpose, the ultimate purchase of the marriage, right? The, the union of, of man and a woman. And, but how easily do all the preparations for a wedding um, replace preparations for the challenges of, of marriage, right? And, and studying to-do lists and worrying about reception details and um, dresses and decorations and all those things can replace easily the, the preparation for for godliness and um, praying for God's grace and humility and years to come and, and, and so on. Um, the, the means can replace the goal easily uh, in our lives. So uh, my challenge to you along these lines is what, what might Jesus' challenge to you be? Again, um, where in your life are you maybe evidencing superficial routine religion or, or uh, the means replacing the goal? Um, where do you maybe have habits that are that are not inherently bad, they're inherently good, but perhaps you're not really pursuing Christ in them? You know, maybe Jesus would say to you or to me, brother, you you bow your head at the meal, you attend worship every week, but you don't even you know fill in the blank. What what difference is it making um, in your life, uh, in your faith? Um, any good thing. Um, in our practice, our, our spiritual discipline, catechizing, meditation, even prayer, can become ends in themselves. They can become routines that make us feel comfortable, make us feel good, uh, rather than means of communing more deeply with Christ. And I think Jesus' illustrations here are emphatic, these last two, that there, there can't be any confusion or mixing of, of your goals with Christ's goals. There, there's no compromise between our old self and, and new life in Christ, uh, really. Um, we're to follow Jesus in everything. Um, so encountering Jesus should not leave you comfortable with the way things are. It, shouldn't leave, it should leave you eager to, to do things differently, to see things differently, to think uh, differently, to continue setting aside old ways of, of doing things and thinking. Um, I think part of the point of his many parables here is is not that we're to make room in our lives for Jesus, right? That's sort of the, the patch illustration, um, but rather that we're um, to be seeing our whole lives transformed by him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you again this morning for your word and uh, the challenges that it offers through these uh, little parables that, that Jesus gives. Lord, we do pray that our uh, relationship with you, the, way, the, the means of grace that you've given to us as we gather for worship, as we pray together, as we uh, spend time in prayer at home or reading your word or, um, uh, Lord, whatever, our, uh, whatever ways that we uh, regularly um, attend to our relationship with you, that, that it would be truly that, that we would be communing with you and drawing closer to Christ, and um, not just going through familiar and comfortable routines. Uh, We pray that you would help us to grow in that. And we pray uh, in Christ's name. Amen.